Hey, thanks, Jana and Court. Guys, before I get started, I want to just tell you about two things. The first is, next Sunday's Mother's Day, and we want to make it as great a Mother's Day at church as we can. And so I sent you all an email this week, and we posted it on Facebook, asking you to help write all of our moms, whether part of our church or not, to, to, to write all of them a beautiful video Mother's Day card. So it's beautiful out today. Can I ask you, dads, moms, help your kids, moms, dads, record something from yourself to your moms and get it sent in to us at mem, uh, moms at mendhamhills.org, moms at mendhamhills.org. Again, I asked you to answer three questions there. Those are on Facebook and they're an email I sent you. Check that out. Also, in a couple of weeks, Dave Jansen, our pastor of spiritual formation, is going to start a new online class. We're calling it The Seeker Six. And we're reaching so many folks right now that I know are new to our church online. And so what Dave is going to start is he's going to do six half hours, one a week, on six things that he wished he understood about the Christian faith early in his walk with Jesus. It's called The Seeker Six. We'll be getting you more details on it. You'll see those coming out in your email. But you can sign up for that class at mhcc.life, and then Dave will follow up with you. Let's jump in together. Last week, last week in our efforts to not waste this crisis, but to come out, in a sense, to reopen ourselves again as we reopen America again, we looked at one huge issue which keeps all of us from changing and becoming the people God created us to be. We discovered that it's blame. See, we went back to the beginning, if you remember, where it all started, when it was all right and where it all went so desperately wrong. And we discovered that we have within ourselves a built-in defense mechanism that is really powerful. I mean, it is a change retardant. See, when things go sideways in our lives, in our relationships, in our finances, careers, homes, families, you name it, when things go wrong or blow up, instead of taking a pause, a time out, and, and thinking and reflecting, figuring out what role we played in, in missing the mark, which is, interestingly enough, the definition for sin in the Bible, missing the mark laid out by God, instead of examining ourselves and looking at our own role, owning our issues, working on them, asking God to forgive us and to help us change. Instead, we blame. Oh, it's not me. It's him or it's her. That's why this happened. Or maybe you experienced this at home this week. If you were doing some of the homework, you experienced blame's first cousin. Uh, he's, he's called, uh, well, what about you? Someone points out something, instead of considering what someone else said, our response is immediately, well, what about you? You do this. Now, if you remember, last week I gave you a Q-tip, a quarantine tip. It was actually a saying I picked up from someone else, but it's so true. Here it is. You make peace with the past by owning your piece of your past. Guys, did you do the homework? Remember, I asked you to write down categories. The first was relationally, the second was professionally, and the third was financially, where things blew up in the past. And I asked you to consider, to examine yourself, and write down your part in it, no matter how small it was or, or maybe how embarrassing it was. And then I told you to confess it, to give it to God, and to ask Him to help you change those things so that we can redeem this quarantine time. Now, if you remember last week, I told you we were going to go to start or restart back in the beginning, in the place where man first missed 
the mark of God. And we did with the story of Adam and Eve and hiding in blame. Chronologically, though, guys, that is not the first time in history where God's mark was missed. It actually occurred earlier as detailed by two Old Testament prophets named Ezekiel and Isaiah. See, Ezekiel and Isaiah, they both chronicle the fall of not man, but of, of man's shared enemy, the one who showed up in the garden in the form of this tempting snake. Now, if you're, you're watching at home this morning and you're, and you're thinking, gosh, John, I, I don't know where you're going with this, snakes and devils, this stuff is getting a little hard to believe. If, if that's kind of where you are on your couch, I would say you're right. There's no doubt it is kind of hard to believe. And so I think for the purposes of this morning, if you're watching at home and you want to view the biblical accounts as allegorical or like the class I took when I was at Rutgers, the Bible is literature. You can do that and you can still learn a lot about yourself and you could use these truths, even if they're allegorical, to help bring about some transformation in your life. But but you should know that as Christians, many of us here at Menham Hills, we believe these accounts to be true. Not because we're suspending critical thinking when we, when we read them, but because Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection is one of the most historically provable and documentable events of the first century, the Jesus who performed miracles in front of hundreds and thousands, this Jesus who predicted that he would be betrayed, crucified, that he would die and be buried, and three days later he'd rise from the dead, the Jesus that pulled that off, that Jesus, well, he talked about these things, and, and he talked about this enemy of ours as if he was real, literal and not figurative. So if Jesus believed it, that's why I believe it. And so now... The Scriptures teach us that this snake, prior to his appearance in the garden, he existed, believe it or not, in another form, an, an angelic one. And he was, for a time, perhaps the most beautiful creature of God's in making. And that became a problem. See, Ezekiel records God saying to him, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Isaiah says that being the most beautiful of all angelic beings was not enough. For you've said in your heart, I'll ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. You see, guys, the first time the mark of God is missed, the first time sin, sin enters into creation, it doesn't occur in the garden. The temptation was just replicated there and ever since. The first time it occurs is in the heavenly realm. And what was it that tripped up both our first enemy and the first man? Pride. And what fuels pride? What is the spark which births it? Comparison. I'm good. I'm beautiful. I have everything I need. I'm happy. I'm content. I have purpose and peace and power until I see you have more even if there is only one in all of creation who has more, and it's the Creator Himself. And when the evil one realized this, it all went away. See, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, in your realm, your home, your office, your neighborhood, comparison, it is the terminal cancer to your contentment. Benjamin Franklin nailed it when he said, contentment makes poor men rich. But discontentment makes rich men poor. Discontentment fueled by comparison, because that's where it comes from. 
is very dangerous to your future. And if you want to, like me, emerge post-quarantine different than pre-quarantine, we need to eliminate discontentment's gasoline, which is comparison. The scriptures are replete with warnings, both direct and indirect, about the dangers of comparing ourselves to others. In the Old Testament, Adam and Eve aren't content with God in the garden because they want, not unlike the snake on the ground, to be like God, which leads to one horrific decision. They have two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain offers to God his first and his best. Abel offers something less. And Moses writes, he tells us that the, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. See, what happens is Cain, instead of looking at himself and examining why it was, instead of examining himself and, and wondering why it was that his offering wasn't acceptable, he looks at Cain, and his discontentment is caused by this comparison, and it fuels not just the first sibling rivalry, but the first recorded murder. Saul was the very first king of Israel. Saul had everything going for him. The prophet Samuel tells a story, and Samuel describes him as tall, good-looking, essentially the perfect candidate to be Israel's first king. There was only one problem for Saul, and it turned out it was his best fighter, David. Now, David, the Scripture actually would tell, tells us, is neither tall nor good-looking, but David could fight, which should have made Saul happy because, after all, he was fighting for Saul. But check this out. Samuel writes that whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops, and it pleased all Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. With, with singing and dancing, with, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced to Saul, they sang. Let me just pause here. And this is just so wonderful right up until now for Saul. Right up until what these women sang. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And David is tens of thousands. Uh, oh... Here it comes again, contentment's little cancer. Saul was very angry. This refrain of theirs displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And from that time on, Saul took his eyes off himself. He didn't enjoy what he had. He didn't enjoy the role that he had been given. He didn't enjoy his victories, his kingdoms, or his crowns. From that time on, Saul didn't look at himself and examine perhaps what it was that was driving his jealousy. No, from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And if you know the story, in the end it doesn't work, all that, work out all that, all that well for Saul. Fast forward with me to the New Testament. Paul, he warns the Corinthian church about the same thing. Many in the church he had planted there were now rejecting his authority because new leaders had risen up in the church who were more refined, they were wealthier, they were more eloquent speakers. And so Paul, he could have been like Saul. 
He could have set his eyes upon these new guys and, and begun the comparison trap. Oh, no. These guys are better than me. They're wealthier than me. They're more elegant in speech than me. But he doesn't. And he explains to them why. Here's how Eugene Peterson translated it in, in the message. He, he, he wrote, we're not, understand, putting ourselves in a league with those who boast that they're our superiors. We wouldn't dare do that. But in all this, comparing and grading and competing, they quite missed the point. Did you hear that? In competing, in comparing, and grading ourselves against others, Paul says, we miss the point. You see, we miss the mark. They may be wealthier, more talented, but that's not the point. I'm not trying to compare myself to them. It's not my issue. So here's the question for me. Is, as I studied this this week, this is a hard teaching for me. I mean, how come I know this? How come I teach this to my kids? But how come I don't own it myself? I mean, we should all know it by now, guys. Let me just, I don't want to be the bearer of good news but, or bad news, but if nobody's broken this to you before, let me quickly explain something to all of you. There will always be somebody smarter than you, somebody faster than you, somebody stronger than you. Somebody richer than you, somebody skinnier than you, somebody prettier than you, somebody handsomer than you, somebody more successful than you. There will always be somebody with more something. But here's your quarantine tip for this week, your Q-tip for the week. There is no win in comparison. See, the race never ends. There is no finish line. It keeps moving, but our problem is we keep running after something like, like a donkey chasing a carrot on a stick. I, I'm going to give you an example, and I, I think it'll hit home with you because I realized it this week. I know what you've been doing over the last few weeks because I've been doing it too. Everybody that's on TV right now has had to broadcast from their home, and I know what you've been thinking. Every time you see that celebrity or news anchor or that kid drafted into the NFL, every time they cut to them in their house, you know what you've been doing. You've been comparing your house to their house. I know because I've been doing it too. And here's what I've learned. I actually have a nicer basement than Chris Cuomo's. But my basement can't hold a candlestick to Roger Goodell's. And that really stinks because I used to really like my basement until I saw Roger Goodell's. Solomon, whom the scriptures refer to as one of the wisest men and one of the richest men to have ever lived, in trying to pass along to us what all of his life had taught him, he said he had something amazing dawn on him. And I think this is utterly amazing. He nails what our pre-quarantine life has been all about. Here's how he saw it. He goes, and I saw that all toil and all achievement, all of our life's work, it all springs from one person's envy of another. Yeah, he goes, I, I've lived a long time. And I, I've done pretty well for myself, and here's what I've figured out. I figured out what's driving us all nuts. I figured out why we can't stop, why none of us are content. It's because we're driven by jealousy of and comparison to others. And then he sums this up. He, he sums up what's been driving so many of us so hard for so long. He sums up what we've given much of our pre-quarantine days to. 
He says, this too is meaningless. He calls it a chasing after the wind. Guys, we have been chasing after the wind. We've been running a race that has no finish line. We, we've been running a race that has no winner. This is how we can be both the richest nation on earth and the most depressed people on earth. This is why we struggle so much with being thankful or, or having a heart of gratitude or, or praising God for what we have and enjoying what we've been given because I need to get back to work so I can have what you have and, and what they've been given. <laughs> Here's the amazing thing, right? Paul told the Romans, and we know that in all things God works for those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. God called you for his purposes. God called you. He called you for his purposes. Is it possible, and I think Solomon would say it is, that you could spend your whole life chasing the wind but missing your purpose because you took your eyes off of your call? Why? Because you were just so envious of somebody else's call. And Solomon goes on because he knows there's another side to chasing the wind. We do too. It's called giving up, giving in. Ah, man, why would I bother? He's so much stronger than I am. She's so much prettier than I am. They have so many more friends than I do. They're much more popular than I am. I'll never win. Why should I even bother? Well, Solomon says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. He says, look, there's two extremes here. The first is don't spend your life trying to keep up with others. Don't spend your life being fueled by jealousy. That's, that's just chasing the wind. But don't just sit there either and do nothing. Oh, you know, I didn't get into the college I wanted to go to, so I guess I'm just not college material. No, 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 that's not it either. And so then what he does is he gives something that, that actually a, a biblical quote that we should crochet on our pillows at home. Here's what he said. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In other words, what he wants you to know is, look, he, and this is coming from a guy who has a lot. He says, look, I, I've been there. It is better to have one handful. It is better to have some and to enjoy it than to have more and give your life away to chasing it. It's better to have some and enjoy it than to give your life away chasing after more and more and never finding contentment. John Solomon would say, dude, your basement's awesome. Go enjoy it. Don't waste your life trying to get Goodell's leather chair. It, it's not all that comfortable anyway. One handful with tranquility. It works both ways. You know what that means? One handful with tranquility means that when my neighbor gets the 75-inch TV, I'm still happy with my 65-inch TV. And I have to tell you, as I say these things to you, I know right now we have many friends in our ministries in Guatemala in the garbage dump that are watching this and shaking their heads at us. But nevertheless, it's our reality. See, one handful with tranquility means that when my kid's friend gets into a better school than my kid... I celebrate their kid, and I celebrate my kid. You know why? Because each of them has been called according to their purposes, and more is not always for the best. 
In fact, Andy Stanley has a great line about this. He said that less is actually more when the less you hold is what you were created for. In other words, wouldn't it be better to have what God wants us to have, to be who God wants us to be, to achieve what God has for us to achieve, and to be content than to constantly be chasing the wind, to be constantly chasing after what he has for someone else. Solomon goes on. He he puts it a different way. He goes, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. In other words, he didn't have any kids to leave anything to. There, There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, Solomon steps out of the story. He goes, this too? Meaningless. He says, it's a miserable business. It's a miserable business. You want to know why so many of you guys hate your jobs? I'll tell you right now, you're involved in a miserable business. Q-tip two for today is this. It's this profound question from Solomon. And so I'll ask you to wrestle with it. For whom are you toiling? You ever stopped and asked yourself that question? With whom are you competing? Who, whose standards are you trying to measure up to? Who are you trying to impress? Who are you racing? Who are you trying to beat? Uh, is it a, a sibling rivalry? I mean, heck, that's as old as the Cain and Abel story we talked about a little bit ago. I, I've I got to be more successful than my brother said who? As measured by? Let me ask it another way. I think Solomon would say to you, who are you trying to impress? Who are you competing with? Because when you answer that question, here's what you're going to discover. That's the person you are allowing to deprive you of enjoyment. And the funny part is, they're not even trying. They're not even aware you're chasing them. Guys, for whom, before you, before you leave your house and go back to work, for whom are you toiling? See, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that we're to run the race that's set before us. Now, I hate to bring this up, but as some of you know, I ran a little bit of track back in the day. And, and here's what I know uh, uh, about a race. In a race, every runner is told to get on your marks. You know why? Because you have a lane to run in and a race to run. i got to get on my mark and run in my lane. But I think what the writers of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, would tell us, what keeps us from running the race that God has set before us is that we have our eyes on someone else's mark. i got my eyes on their mark. I have my eyes on people in the lanes beside me, and I don't have my eyes set on the race that's set before me. And so I never find my purpose, my meaning, my peace, my tranquility. I'm never going to find it until I learn to run my race, to stay in my lane, to quit chasing after the wind. God gave you a race to run. Stop, stop trying to run everybody else's race. Look, if you want to miss God's call on on your life, if you want to lose any sense of contentment, then just keep comparing your call to others. It'll mess you up. I'm not just talking about your job here either. That would be too easy. 
Start comparing your boyfriend to her boyfriend. Start comparing your marriage to their marriage. Start comparing how your wife looks compared to how his wife looks or, or your husband's job to her husband's job. Do you know how powerful that is? Because com comparison is the cancer of contentment. And, and for those of us that are following Jesus, for those of us who are followers uh, uh, of his, it's dangerous because he gave us a race to run, a job to enjoy, a spouse to love, kids in which we should be proud, marriages in which we should thrive. And they all get messed up when we start looking around at everybody else's, when we start running in their lanes. You've been given a unique call. Your own race, a purpose for your life, something that God created for you to do. And God has given you all that you need to do it. See, he placed it in you before the foundations of the earth. If you were supposed to be taller or smarter or faster, he would have made you taller or smarter or faster. But he didn't. See, he made you the way he did with purpose and intent he made you perfectly crafted to run the race that he set before you. He fearfully and wonderfully made you to answer the call he gave you. Stay in your lane. Run your race. Keep your eyes not on all the guys next to you, but on Jesus who goes before you. You're focused on the wrong guy, and you're running the wrong race. And so when we get out of quarantine, when we go back to whatever lane we're in, see, transformation comes from us when we embrace the race we've been given. If you're a, if you're a teacher, look, for a moment, take your eyes off the other teachers, stop looking over at the principal, stop toiling for somebody else's attention or praise, and here's what you do. You show what those kids, what it looks like when Jesus shows up at school to teach children. If you're a store clerk and you're cashing out, and look, I know John Q. Public is not easy to work for. They can be horribly disrespectful. But you know what you show them? You show them what it's like when Jesus bags their groceries. If you're in a position of power or influence, take your eyes off the next step up the corporate ladder and start using the power and the influence that God has given you. Start leveraging it, not for career success, but to reach down the ladder and pull others up with you. Do you see how this begins to work? I, I was given such a humbling and brilliant example of that this week. When you're the pastor, you get emails. And uh, when you talk every week, surprisingly enough, not everybody agrees with everything you say or every decision you make. And, and so this week, a friend of mine wrote me to express some frustration about a decision that I had made, and, and he was pretty fired up about it, and I, I totally understood where he was coming from. I, I got his point, and we agreed on a lot of things. And so I, I wrote him back, and I, I told him that, but I also explained why I made the decision I had made, and I was kind of you know, I, I, I was kind of just hoping he might be able to see my side of the story. And, well, he wrote me back, and with his permission, I want to read you what he said. John, he said, reading this brought a smile to my face in a good way. He said, just today, I got a call from my employer's regional manager. You see, I, I work for a contracting company, so we're, 
We're a corporately owned national firm with 4,000 employees. He, he said, I came here for opportunities and their amazing benefits, and I've been here less than 90 days. And two weeks ago, I was notified that I am generating far, far more income than the other techs at my branch. Today, I get a congratulations call from the same head guy. Apparently, my company ranks their techs at regional levels, and out of the 116 techs in our region, I'm number five. He goes, there's a point to what I'm telling you. I'm great at what I do. But these big picture issues that leaders, bosses, and head guys have to look at, I don't always see. You're right in your decisions and your big pick view. Thanks for getting back to me. Looking forward to our future. And I thought, wait, what? Who says that? John, I'm really good what I'm, what, at what I do. I, I'm running my race. I'm doing what God made me to do, what God has so blessed me with. I'm enjoying it. John, you run your race too. May we, may I be so humble and as thankful as my friend. And so, guys, here's your quarantine questions for this week. Here's your homework. Find the time. I, I know you have it. And answer for yourself and answer for God these questions. First, what is the wind you are chasing? What is it really? What are you chasing after? Is it, is it a bigger house? Is it a thinner waistline, a nicer car? Write down just a bunch of those things. And here's what I want you to do. When you write it down, you know, Ferrari, I want you to write next to it, wind. Thinner waistline, wind. Bigger house, wind. Corner office, wind. This way, when you come out of quarantine and those things start pulling at you again, begging you to make dumb decisions or, or to steal your enjoyment and your peace, you can remind yourself, nope, no, 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 no. Uh, nope, that's just the wind. Second, just as Saul took his eyes off his own kingdom and put them on David, on whom have you set your eyes? Solomon asked the question in a different way. For whom are you toiling? Gosh, there is such freedom in identifying this and then letting it go. Don't come out of quarantine working for the same person's approval that you went into quarantine looking for. Admit this to God. Confess it to him. Ask him to help you refocus on him and the race he set before you. That's it. Two things, but I promise you, if you'll take this stuff to God this week, he'll meet you in the time you give him, and he will reveal some powerful truths to you. Mendham, this week... Don't let the comparison game steal your joy anymore. There is no win in comparison. Instead, this week, find the contentment and the peace and the joy that can only be found as we run the race that God set out for us, for you. And I'll see you back here next week when together we are going to celebrate Mother's Day like never before.